I will work day in and day out to wake up and smell the coffee. The independence case is a powerful one. Another future is possible, but we've got to fight for it. Hello and welcome to the Debated Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will. And in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Ben Donant, Editor-in-Chief of Frontier Myanmar. Welcome to the podcast, Ben. Um, Hey, Will. It's nice to be here. It's great to have you on. Um, Now, the first question that I'd like to ask you is, in terms of the politics of um, Myanmar, it's obviously something that people in the UK and and the West might not be entirely um, familiar with. Could you give us a, a, a general summary of the political situation in Myanmar at the moment? Um, Sure. I mean, I think um, a a potted history might be useful here. Mm -hmm. That is to say, you know, uh, Burma was uh, colonized by uh, Britain um, since um, from the 19th century until the uh, middle of the 20th century. And then on getting independence in 1948, um, it um, enjoyed a brief period of uh, multi-party uh, uh, democracy lasting about 12 years. And then there was a military coup in 1962. And that ever since then, um, the country has been under various forms of uh, military rule. Um, there was a reform process um, launched in uh, 2011 Um that generated a lot of excitement about the country. You know, you had um, competitive elections that were won by uh, Aung San Suu Kyi's party, the uh, National League for Democracy, in uh, 2015. A lot of new uh, freedoms were granted to the populations. Um, you had new pound uh, press freedoms and freedoms for civil society and so on. Um, and many of these changes were, um, you know, uh, they did have a freedoms that had not been seen since 1962 and, you know, did represent an overwhelmingly positive change. However, what was instituted was a form of power sharing between the uh, military and uh, an elected government. Um, And um, this generated uh, certain tensions because the military, when it uh, decided to open up and reform, it seemed to think that its proxy party, the uh, USDP, would win. Um, it's always had um, a rather distorted idea about how it was used by uh, the population. They thought mm-hmm. that the people would uh, credit it for the, you know, the, the uh, very limited development that they had brought to the country and then the new freedoms that they had introduced from, uh, from 2011. However, Aung San Suu Kyi's party kept on um, winning elections, and that party was also trying to change the constitution to reduce the military's um, role in politics further. Mm-hmm. Um, now, um, after the 2015 election that was resoundingly won by Aung San Suu Kyi's party, um, I think the military had a sense that perhaps the public would become uh, disenchanted with her and her party. However, However, they, uh, the ministry was proved very wrong in that, in that in a, another election in 2020, um, mm. Aung San Suu Kyi's party won by an even larger mar- uh, margin, and the military party did even worse. That was a mm. big humiliation for the military, and they decided that um, a, enough was enough, and so they then seized power on the uh, 1st of February uh, 2021. 
And, um, and and ever since then, you know, the country's been back under full military rule, but there's been a huge um, swell of resistance to military rule that started in uh, street protests in which millions of people were involved. And when um, the military cracked down very violently on those, um, they basically succeeded in uh, creating a new war as many peaceful protesters um, decided uh, uh, to take up arms. They um, had they, uh, headed to the mountainous border areas. They uh, linked up with uh, uh, well-established rebel groups. They learned how to fight and then decided to um, take the fight to, uh, to the military. So now what you have is what seems like a fairly um, entrenched civil war. And that is uh, costing a lot of lives, is is not really um, prompting any real political concessions from the military and uh, both sides are digging in. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you, you mentioned, of course, um, Anchang Suli uh, there. In terms of her recognition to the West, she was seen uh, very much, at least initially, as a figure of um, change in, in Burma, in, in Myanmar. Do you think that the Western um, perception of her was that she would be this uh, figure that would completely revolutionise the country, ensure that um, democracy stayed uh, a factor in Myanmar without taking into account the power of the military and also the military's fear that their power could be eroded. Do do you think that often in in terms of the um, press reception to her and the press presentation of her, there was a a lack of understanding as to that the military could at any moment, as of course they did, um, intervene and ensure that she didn't have any power at all? Um, um, That's a good question. I mean, um, she was lauded a opposition figure for a long time. You know, she was an Elsit um, uh, Mandela figure. And so I think a lot of her appeal in the West was the fact that she was, you know, facing um, overwhelming odds, you know, was keeping the uh, flame of uh, democracy alive. So there wasn't necessarily an ex- um, uh, an expectation that, you know, she would um, achieve her mission soon or in the new future, really, at any point. You know, it was always, there was this sort of vague idea that, you know, mm. she would prevail one day and uh, Myanmar would um, become a democracy. And I'd say overall, the world was very um, pessimistic about um, the prospects for democracy um, in the country up until about 10 years ago. Um, when um, a lot of the reforms that the military introduced went further than expected, and you know, and then there was a competitive election, and I think um, then the narrative did a bit of a one eighty, in that then there were inflated um, uh, expectations about what the political transition um, would deliver. Um, and I think it was often slightly obscured that what had been introduced was not full democracy, but a power-sharing agreement. Mm-hmm. And um, Aung San Suu Kyi was uh, essentially navigating a space in which, um, you know, she'd um, tried to uh, more straightforwardly oppose uh, the military um, for for a couple of decades and then, you know, was basically um, allowed to 
participate in a sort of mixed system where the best she could really achieve was was a form of power sharing. And so she came to accept um, those parameters um, and um, seemingly came to think that, you know, uh, gradually the ministry may um, come to accept more change and that, you know, that, that if she worked with them, they'll uh, trust in certain areas, then, you know, they would agree to further changes in uh, the constitution. But I think a lot of that hinged on, you know, that 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 relationship between uh, her and the military, and particularly mm-hmm. between uh, and, uh, the military chief, uh, men online, at a personal level. And I think some of the uh, naive assumptions were that, you know, this sort of mixed form of governments, even though it was short of full democracy, could endure for quite some time, was relatively uh, able, was not ideal, but had delivered new freedoms. That that was, you know, that that could endure for a while and the country, the economy could continue to grow, the country could develop. And I think what was underappreciated was how fragile like that was, you know, mm. that it was built on this relationship between Aung San and the military. That, that, you know, that was incredibly fragile and contingent on certain personalities, you know, that had uh, considered each other enemies for a long time. And that really, as, you know, at... Uh, the flip of a switch, the military could decide to uh, tear up this deal that they basically formed with uh, civilian politicians and that, you know, all the positive change could go into reverse very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the uh, other potential flashpoints, indeed it is a, a, a great flashpoint in um, Myanmar that isn't directly related to um uh, the, the the political settlement is that of um, Chin nationalism. Now, in terms of Chin nationalism, how far do you think the military will go in um, as, as as they see it, combating um, the Chin people's um, fight for uh, the greater sovereignty and, and, and greater um, power for themselves? Do you think that we're going to see even further? Um, bloodshed on this front and how aware do you think people outside of Myanmar are as to Chin nationalism a a desire by the 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 Chin people for uh greater powers and 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 even independence from the rest of Myanmar Hmm. um that you highlighted the case of the Chin the Chin are uh one of the I think um minorities of Myanmar um it is a very ethnically uh, diverse country, and several different uh, minority groups have waged uh, rebellions against the central government for uh, many, many decades. You know, these these kind of conflicts precede the coup um, uh, by a long way. Um, but I think the Chin, who occupy a mountainous tract on uh, the border with India in the northwest of the country, um, had um, launched a um, uh, a small scale insurgency, you know, starting in the uh, 1990s. That didn't go as far as in um, insurgencies in uh, other, uh, I think, minority areas of the mm-hmm. country. And since the coup, Chin State, um, rather surprisingly, has um, emerged as one of the major uh, centers of armed um, revolt. You know, within months of the coup. 
you had newly formed Chin uh, armed groups that you know were attacking military bases, um, you know, scoring all sorts of um, successes. You know, were then met by a brutal military response that didn't um, crush opposition there. Um, and um, so this is sort of within the broader context of the armed resistance to the military coup, um, but it has a certain uh, ethnic uh, dimension in that, like a lot of these groups are also um, now advocating for more autonomy for the Chin people within a new federal uh, structure. So the idea is that even, you know, from uh, the Burma majority, um, you know, which makes up about um, seventy percent of the country. You know, concentrated in the center of the country, it's where the military is almost overwhelmingly drawn from. And Sang Su Chi is also drawn drawn from this uh, minority groups. Most of the mainstream politicians are, and um, that you know, even within uh, uh, the ethnic mainstream, in opposition to the coup, there is the idea of um, creating a federal uh, that after you know the military junta is uh, defeated. And civilian rule is uh, established. One of the most important things they would do is uh, to federalize the country and grant more autonomy uh, to ethnic groups, um, including the Chin. So, therefore, although um, what the Chin doing might look from the outside a bit like a separatist movement, it's it's sort of very much part and parcel of of the broader national resistance to. Um, the military coup um, because there's an idea that, you know, ethnic groups could win from this because there, there, there is a broad consensus among the uh, resistance alliance, the alliance of groups that are resisting the coup, that there would be a federal country that uh, ethnic minorities would get more rights. So I think the um, military is kind of responding to uh, uprisings in Chin in much the way that it's responding to uprisings in um, other parts of uh, the country, you know, it's being being met with brute force, but uh, but so are many other countries, you know, including areas where um, the ethnic uh, majority uh, reside too. Um, so I think in that sense, in terms of the conflict, it's sort of um, it can't really be removed from the uh, post coup political crisis. Um, and um, although the military is responding to the Chin uprising, you know, uh, through airstrikes, targeting civilians and so on, it is also doing that in many other many other parts of the countries, in, including in the central dry zone, um, where there's also been, you know, at least in the northwestern parts of the dry zone, um, huge uh, resistance that has also been had a very brutal, been met by a very brutal uh, response. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, another... Uh group that has um, suffered a, a great deal of persecution, particularly um, in relation to their uh, religion, have been the Rohingya Muslims. And of course, um, a, a lot of uh, Rohingya Muslims have had to flee from Myanmar to neighbouring countries. What impact has that had on Bangladesh um, and India? And do you think that there is more that perhaps... The West could do in 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 aiding uh, these refugees. Do you think that there is a, a a willingness from the international community to do more, but there simply has not been a concerted effort by one country to take the lead on it? Do you think that, that we're going to see any um, international aid um, going further than perhaps it is at the moment? 
there is um, a lot of international aid um, going to the Rohingya refugees in uh, Bangladesh. I, I mean, perhaps not as much as is um, uh, actually needed because mm-hmm. the needs are huge there. You know, it's a population of at least one million refugees, you know, living in this, you know, um, rather narrow tract of Bangladesh. Um, but overall, the Rohingya crisis is rather separate from the um, post-coup crisis. Mm-hmm. Post-coup crisis absolutely affects the uh, Rohingya crisis in the sense that, um, you know, there would, um, there was a vicious campaign against the Rohingya um, that, you know, started in a small way um, with Rohingya militant uh, attacks that um, were met with brutal reprisals in 2016 and then on a larger scale the uh, following year. And, um, and it was that year that you saw hundreds and thousands of Rohingya people being uh, were driven from their homes, you know, by the military campaign, and then fled across the border um, to Bangladesh. And since then, there has been this, you know, multilateral process by by which, um, or no, uh, more accurately to say, a uh, bilateral process between uh, Bangladesh and Myanmar, you know, but with a lot of international support and. Um, where Myanmar has basically agreed um, to accept back the Rohingya who um, fled during that time. Um, but um, the problem is, is that Rohingya is still a very persecuted group in the country. They are mm-hmm. uh, denied full citizenship or there are all sorts of obstacles that are put in, uh, in their way um, because citizenship is defined in Myanmar along uh, ethnic lines. If you're not considered an indigenous group, um, then it's very hard to become a citizen and Rohingya are not considered a native group. Mm. Uh, and those Rohingya who remain in Myanmar, you know, have their freedom of movement really confined, don't enjoy many um, of the other basic rights of uh, that uh, citizens should have. Um so even before the coup, the conditions were not really conducive to um, the Rohingya uh, returning because they would be returning to a situation of persecution. Um, however, the military coup has made this even worse because, you know, like now the country is ruled by a brutal military regime and it's also uh, directly ruled um by the same military that um, uh, drove them out of the country in a vicious campaign. So, you know, you basically be returning them to the uh, hands of their torturers. Um, so um, the prospects for Rohingya returning to Myanmar are very bleak. You know, it seems that many of them are um, condemned to remain in Bangladesh for a very long time. Many of them you know, in in um, in often very poor conditions. You know, where they can't, where the kids struggle to access uh, education or uh, any life opportunities. So many of them are paying people smugglers um, to flee uh, to Malaysia. You know, often in these rickety boats that sink very frequently. So um, really, although it's a slightly uh, separate crisis, the basically crisis, the winter crisis. Um, I think it has made the prospects for the Rohingya uh, even more bleak. Um, un, um, unless the, revolu- the uh, revolutionary movement 
against the junta were to um, succeed in the near future, in which case, you know, the prospects of the Rohingya coup would potentially be uh, turned around in that what's important to say is that uh, the movement opposing British rule has made certain commitments to respect the rights of the Rohingya to um, grant them citizenship, which, um, you know, represents... Uh, represented a bit of a sea change in uh, democratic politics following the coup in that the problem was before the coup in that mainstream uh, Myanmar society was not sympathetic to the to the Rohingya. There was a lot of racism against them. Mm. Um, and uh, But since then, you know, the uh, National Unity Government, you know, which is a parallel administration, you know, formed um, to oppose the military junta has you know, uh, made a declaration that, you know, it would restore citizenship rights to the Rohingya. So you could say that, you know, um, their fate in some way dependent on on the success of the uh, revolutionary movement, you know, which has made certain uh, pledges to uh, restore their rights and, and therefore to actually facilitate their successful resettlement uh, back in Myanmar. Mm-hmm. Um, now, COVID, of course, was a, a crisis that affected the entire world but it had a particularly um savage impact on Myanmar didn't it in terms of looking now um as a, a lot of the world um is not in the same position that it was during the height of the pandemic what after effects has the um been in Myanmar as a result of covid is it still a a, a threat for people in Myanmar what, what's the situation at the moment um, prior to the military coup you know which was just in um uh 1st february uh, 2021 um Myanmar had not had a particularly bad uh time of covid you know it had got through the pandemic relatively unscathed you know there 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 was something of an outbreak in um 2020 that was uh, late 2020 that was uh fairly limited in retrospect However, um, uh, the coup and the return to ministry will basically put Myanmar in the worst possible position for the uh, Delta wave of COVID-19 that had all, uh, really ravaged India in you know the um, springtime in 2021, and you know a month or two after that, it then and put Myanmar you know a much more virulent strain of uh, the coronavirus and uh, that inflicted um, a tragic amount of damage in, in the country. There was an extraordinary uh, death toll that, you know, was hugely underreported um, by the military hunter, you know, just mm. uh, speaking anecdotally to people or anyone who had any connection to Myanmar, you know, would have known um, uh, quite the, you know, would have had some idea of the toll that it took, you know, Friends and colleagues of mine, for instance, you know, uh, many of their older or even um, um, not so old relatives died at that time. Mm. Uh, I think it was particularly bad there because, um, you know, the coup had uh, eviscerated already a very threadbare and fragile uh, healthcare sector that had just about been able to um, address the uh, previous outbreak of COVID, you know, um, for the Delta wave. And um, and this wave just completely overwhelmed it because 
um, you know, there, there was already widespread conflict, you know, um, society was in revolt, but also many medical professionals, they uh, went on strike. They didn't want to work for the military regime. One of the, one of the strongest responses to the coup was, uh, the civil disobedience movement, which was a strike of government workers who decided to, uh, walk out of their offices after the coup in an attempt to kind of bring down the military regime regime because you know wouldn't be able to function mm. uh, and this general strike was particularly strong in uh the health and education sectors so a lot of the doctors you know who did staff the uh government hospitals before you know were simply not there anymore but were nonetheless trying to um provide healthcare and care for uh covid affected people on an individual basis you know um, on like a charitable basis however they were being persecuted and hunted down by the military regime for going on strike. So often mm. their efforts to, you know, provide charitable health services to uh, people were uh, stamped down on by the military. And, you know, the military also tried to reserve uh, supplies of oxygen for uh, the state healthcare system. And many people wanted um, to avoid a boycott and that, you know, had been um, rendered very dysfunctional by the civil um, disobedience movement and, and, you know, was not really prepared to allow the more private um, charitable response to fill the gap, you know? So he yeah. couldn't just kind of obsession with trying to impose um, control, like hugely uh, worsened the uh, severity of the outbreak and caused, you know, um, you know possibly... You know, uh, hundred and you know, just well, I, I I can't put a number on it, but you know, mm-hmm. uh, any many unnecessary deaths. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, we're coming towards the end of the podcast, Ben. It's been great to talk to you, but I have one uh, final question. In terms of Myanmar's future, obviously there is the um, military control at the moment. In terms of democracy, things don't look great as it is at the moment. But what are your thoughts about Myanmar's future? Do you have any positive feelings as to as to change that might happen and, and, to, and to when it might happen? Do you think that it's going to be uh, more of a, a, a long-term project, a, a transition potentially back to some kind of democratic norm? Or do you think that something might happen in the more immediate future? I think what we have now is... Um... The beginnings of what could be quite an entrenched conflict. Mm. Um, I think early on after the coup, with the massive protests and the civil disobedience movement, there was a lot of hope that you know, um, if everyone just came together, that uh, the crisis could be resolved uh, very quickly, and that there could be a regime change. You know, that the revolution could um, prevail. But mm-hmm. two years on, there's there's um, uh, I, I think there's an acknowledgement that, you know, this is not a crisis that's going to be resolved um, quickly, you know, although the military is on the back foot, you know, it is facing opposition and armed opposition in, you know, um, to an unprecedented uh, degree and, and offer, you know, and over a huge swathe of the country and is under huge pressure. Um, the military is in incredibly obstinate, you know, it's not going to back down. Um, it's, you know, showing no signs of making any, um, concession. It's just digging in further. Um, so sort of the moment it looks at the point that sort of nothing short of total, uh, 
defeat would actually bring the uh, military um, to the table at all. And I think there's still a very strong determination um, among, you know, the resistance movement to uh, defeat the military um, or decisively. You know, any talk of negotiations are taboo at the moment. Um, so, you know, it, there is essentially all uh, to play for. Uh, nothing is set in stone in terms of Myanmar's future. However, um, I think uh, defeating the the military is a very tall order. You know, it's, um, it is a large military. It has, you know, um, access to heavy weapons and an air force that can mount uh, aerial raids, the opposition movement. Although it is an armed movement, um, there is uh, it suffers from a chronic um, under supply of weaponry. Um, um, a chronic under supply of weaponry. It has no meaningful international uh, support at all. You know, so the resistance moving, fighting huge odds, and um, and it seems the military doesn't necessarily care how long the uh, the war drags on for, as long as it you know. Um, gets to be in charge uh, um, uh, at least in the capital city you know it may cling on to the last so I think mm -hmm. you're looking at very possibly a very long and grueling conflict but one I think in which the outcome is um, not um, foregone um, in any sense of the word mm -hmm. absolutely well thank you once again um, for taking the time to record the podcast with me Ben um, if people want to find out more about uh, Frontier Myanmar and more about you, where should they go to find out more about both of you? Um, well, you can visit our website, uh, frontiermyanmar.net. Um, uh, there are other community organizations as well, like uh, Myanmar Now and the Eurowoody. Um, and uh, I, you know, um, I, I would encourage everyone to uh, pay attention uh, to Myanmar. I think there's been an assumption that because, you know, it's getting very little news attention that nothing has happened, that not much is happening there or things are dying down. I mean, it couldn't really be um, further from the case. And, um, you know, it's it's going through a lot right now. And I think any, any form of international support and uh, solidarity would be uh, greatly appreciated by the people of Myanmar who I think at the moment feel that they've uh, been abandoned uh, by the world. See the amount of international support and attention going to Ukraine um, and all that, you know, many of them would be sympathetic to Ukraine, you know, but that's a galling thing, you know, to mm. sort of see, oh, you know, we're just a small country that, you know, few people outside of our borders really care about, you know, although, mm. you know, what they've, although they've suffered an enormous, um, um, you know, a huge uh, injustice at the hand of the military. So I think, you know, statements of support and solidarity, but I think more, you know, uh, material forms of support, I, I think would be um, uh, hugely appreciated and uh, currently rather lacking. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I, I totally agree with you. And I hope that uh, many of uh, the people listening to this will, will take your advice and, and, and do something proactive. Thank you once again uh, for coming on the podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you've enjoyed it, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbeam and Amazon Music. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Debated Podcast, like us on Facebook, Debated Podcast, and if you'd like to get in touch with us, whether about appearing on an episode of the podcast, 
or commenting on an episode that you've listened to, you can do so at thedebatedpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I hope you listen to the next one.